Welcome to a special AI-focused edition of Investec Focus Radio. Is artificial intelligence truly going to change lives or is it overhyped? Given our clients' insatiable interest in the technology, we decided to bring in an AI expert. With a master's in manufacturing engineering, computer science, a doctorate in artificial intelligence, and a research fellowship looking at how to apply AI to noisy datasets, there's probably not a lot about AI that Tristan Fletcher doesn't know. Here's Investec UK's Managing Director of Fintech, Mark James, in conversation with Fletcher on AI's recent developments, some real-world practical applications, and the future of a tech that's raising billions in investment and keeping at least millions of humans awake at night. Welcome, Tristan. Nice Thank to see you again. So I've written down here an MSc in Computer Science, a PhD in artificial intelligence and a research fellowship at Imperial College looking at how to apply AI to noisy data sets. Now, as a roster of academic qualifications, I mean, firstly, when was all this? Because there's a, this is enthusiasm at the moment around AI, but this was a while back, right? It was a while back. And actually, adding to that list, rather not very humbly, I did a manufacturing engineering degree before that, and it was while I was working post that, using that in the real world, the physical world, that I realized the benefits of machine learning and AI solving real world problems. And that would have been about 2002. And it was a great time to be quite sort of technical and enthusiastic about AI because it wasn't that pervasive a technology. People were still associating it with sci-fi novels and crazy things like that. So if you had a pragmatic perspective on things and had, were lucky enough to work somewhere where there were real world problems to solve using these kind of techniques, it was a great time to be in the field. So before AI and machine learning dominated the front and the top and the middle and the back of every newspaper, there were you, you know, with all these qualifications, keen to apply them in the real world. So what was the first, you know, experience of doing that? So the first one was with physical supply chains. It was working for a management consultancy that specialised in trying to save huge manufacturing companies' money, your supermarkets, people who make stuff that we buy as consumers. And there was this very interesting set of problems. In fact, one of them was for Knorr soups, who make soup of different flavors. And they had realized that the sequence in which they made the soups is really important. So you make a spicy one and then a really bland one, or one with pork and then a halal one, you have much greater cleaning times than, for example, the other way around. And those cleaning times could change in real time and massively influence the cost of making this soup. So we used AI to try and tell them what order to make these soups in. Sounds very pedestrian, but saved them loads of money in a very pragmatic sense. They now had a timetable in which to sequence the ordering of their soup making. And it was stuff like that that was like, this is cool. I can take these arcane, crazy, mathematically laden techniques and change what order soup is made in. I mean, it seems yeah. like some of the sort of esoteric and the ivory tower to the amazingly mundane, but saves money and is, you know, pretty cool. You know, one of the first things you did, I think, I might get this in the wrong order, was a whole pile of work in the hedge fund community, UBS, you know, algo trading, which certainly people in my world would associate yeah. with AI. People using, you know, smart techniques to make money in prop trading is an obvious use case to people like, me in a way that soups would not be. How did you move into those areas? 
So I started off as a derivatives trader a couple of doors down from where we are now, Gresham right. Street, Lloyd's. And even there, realized there was an awful lot of inefficiencies in how people were thinking about pricing derivatives, looking at the yield curve optionality, and was trying to find ways of bringing AI techniques into the workflow to, it's quite arcane, but maybe to fit vol smiles and things like that in, in the derivatives world. But again, in this very old-fashioned world of Excel and kind of spreadsheets, not properly programmatic. And then started reading about how people were using AI to speculate. And I got really excited about the fact that you could make money out of money using this embryonic skill set. I managed to persuade some people who were setting up a hedge fund at the time to employ me to directly just try and find sources of alpha that were uncorrelated with their main strategy, which is trend following. So a lot of hedge funds still make money by buying stuff when it goes up and selling it when it goes down, particularly in commodities. And it's quite hard to outperform that. And the only way you're likely to outperform that is by looking at data sets that are different. They sound obvious, but if you're buying stuff when it goes up and selling it when it goes down, you're looking at the previous price of that thing. So it seemed logical to me to look at other kinds of data. Yeah. The best thing to do when you've got other kinds of data is try and find techniques that are very good at capitalizing on the kind of noisiness in that data, which will represent uncertainty, and joining together data sets. And that's when they did actually help this hedge fund make some money and then worked at some more well-known trend-following hedge funds in the world of AI. Again, trying to complement existing base ways of making money, trend-following or other strategies, by looking at interesting data sets. And I think a common theme of what's projected machine learning and AI into all these industries it's not just the increased power of the algorithms, lots of clever people coming up with better ways of processing data, but it's the data itself. And you couldn't have any of these explosions of technology without the fuel underneath, which is the data. And 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a lot less interesting stuff to play with. Now, you can use satellite pictures, you can go and get text, um, et cetera. But at the time, you, just, you, you would almost kind of influence the signals based on the, the data sets instead of other constraints you might have. So I just want to explore these different verticals. I've written down here healthcare, which I know you and I have spoken about in the past, but also fine wine trading. With wines, I worked in this well-known hedge fund that had a very strong compliance department and wouldn't let me trade anything that was a proper tradable instrument. So I couldn't you know, go and buy stocks or shares while I trade in my own account. And I found out that wine was exempt from that. I also found out that wine was very inefficiently priced. I just went to the Sotheby's website and downloaded historical prices of wines on auction and noticed they were all over the place. You can characterize a wine in simple terms, you know, what vintage it is, which appellation, some things like that. And I couldn't believe that this ostensibly the same wine would have such a wide variation in price one day to the next. And I looked into it and I thought, this is crazy. And I also thought the actual prices were crazy. So I thought, well, there's some money to be made here. Why not try and see if I can use machine learning in a way that I'm allowed to, legally, because of where I work, and with all these data sets around. And it was the kind of thing that also stimulated interest in the kind of the outside world because it was an unusual use case. Yeah. So we was at UCL at the time, we did a project where we tried to forecast fine wine prices on various attributes, a lot of them kind of looking at trend analysis, but conditioned on what year the wine might be or what kind of vintage. And then some other stuff looking at weather data, and what influence that would have on wine prices eventually. And I have to say, that was an example of me using machine learning more for the sake of it, because it sounded cool, than it necessarily being the right tool. And this happens a lot. And I think 
I've been heard saying this before, and I'm, I believe it less now, but it's of the zeitgeist. People like to attach themselves to it because it sounds cool. So there's loads of companies out there who use machine learning and AI techniques when there's utterly no need for the complexity involved in them at all, or even pretending when they're not. Yeah. And I was doing more of the former, but probably could have got away with using much more basic statistics methods, but it just wouldn't have sounded so cool. I'm sure if we plotted all the company names of companies being formed and those with AI in the title, it's going to grow exponentially. But healthcare, though. So I've done two things in healthcare. The ambulance one was really, really cool. We did some work that's being used right now in the real world in South Africa, where we worked with a private emergency services company out there to forecast when and where they were likely to get demand for uh, an ambulance. And this seasonality in ambulance call outs, you think about it in the UK, you're more likely to get people drunk on a Friday night causing accidents than you are mid-afternoon. That's more likely to be the case in a city than in the region area. And, and actually in South Africa, they get a lot more accidents around rugby matches. Amateur rugby causes loads of accidents. So there's loads of cool stuff you can do and put it in a machine learning framework and kind of smooth between areas and over time scales and things to build out something that can create schedules for these ambulance drivers and say, you need to be park your ambulance here at this time, move it here at this time, and massively increased efficiencies for them. We saved loads of money. And, and this was such a cool use case because we started off with all these really stereotypical alpha male, utterly dismissive of technology, South African chaps. And then months later, they're like, I can now spend more time with my family. I'm wasting much less time. Thank you so much. It was a complete turnaround and a great example of technology completely transforming someone's job function in a really positive way. That was really cool. And actually another thing I did, which was very cool, so this is massively fame glorious of me, was in the medical domain, which is looking at people's heart scans. So we would take 3D MRI scans of people's heart while they were moving. So imagine a, a moving 3D scan of a heart. Yeah. And, and there's a bit of your heart that doesn't move as much as it should, where the two left and right side of your heart join between left and right ventricle doesn't move as much as it should when you've got this particular kind of disease called pulmonary hypertension and through the use of machine learning and ai we could distill down these very complicated moving 3d images and say this bit if it doesn't move quite as much this person really needs to go and sort themselves out and see a cardiologist and instead of people having suspicion to have this disease and having to catheterize their hearts they now no longer need to stick this like metal thing into their heart. They can go and get it scanned and the AI tells them the same thing. So we changed clinical practice. That's really cool as well for this particular cardiovascular disease that actually is unfortunately quite common. When you and I first met, bring it back to sort of financial services a little bit, I think that was when you were with Thought Machine. It's worth explaining to some of the listeners, you know, what Thought Machine is and also how, how it came about you. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be clear, I don't work there now, but what they do now is they are replacing all the core banking infrastructure in primarily in retail banks. So I think it's in the public domain that they work with Lloyd's TSB and they've gone in there and said, if you were going to start from scratch, instead of taking all these systems that grew non-organically because of acquisition, lots of different banks being bought up and consolidated, if you're going to start from scratch, what's the best way of building a bank? Have a single source of truthful transactions, have smart transactions can operate independently of people, etc, etc. Let's build it. And they're obviously doing fantastically well. It's hard to sell something like that. No one wants to be the first mover. But once you've got some momentum, and they have, you know, it grows very, very quickly. When I joined, and I was one of the first people to join it was just a handful of us maybe I was employee number six I think it had a very different mission that involved machine learning 
and it was quite a common mission at the time. So this is around 2016. A lot of the retail banks were trying to work out how to create value for their customers on their own data sets. So they were saying, oh, you know, you bank with RBS, I can see all your transactions and I can categorize them for you. I can tell you, you spend this much on food every day, this much on your rent. I can then give you advice on how you spend, maybe try and normalize it against other people who think are like you or, or give you some warnings that you're going to run out of money in a bit or go even further and do stuff like predict that someone's just had a child because their salary has changed and their expenditure on particular yeah. items has increased massively. And all of a sudden, 2016, 2017, loads of people, and it coincided with open banking, yes. you know, obviously expert fintech, but those two things had to go hand in hand. Otherwise, there was no way an ecosystem could go and do this. Suddenly, all these people were doing it. And you had the startup banks. You know, I think the FSA went from only having done one banking license in 2015 to suddenly having 48 the next year yeah, or something was this explosion returns and they were all doing it too so whilst the ceo of thought machine paul taylor had the insights like well why work in this low value massively you know huge competitive field i've discovered this other thing so a complete change from using machine learning which is why i was there on transaction data to a much bigger more important more valuable problem with a huge defensible moat which is called banking infrastructure unfortunately one of the consequences of that was there was no need for machine learning anymore so let's come on to chai so you had a variety of areas you could have started a business in yeah and you chose chai in commodities and it's worth telling people you know what it is you're building why you're building it and but also why those areas yeah, so you know, to give you more of the kind of creation story behind Chai, I was invited by the UK government to sell AI to the Chinese on a trade mission. So I went out with a group of people already, hopefully with some humility and realizing Chinese are amazing at AI. And this is around yep. 2016, 2017. Um, and I went out there and I I was kind of sort of feeling my way, having lots of discussions with different people. And I was at the time thinking about how to use AI in the physical world a bit and go back to the kind of stuff I was doing with soups and this physical supply chain. And actually met a Chinese organization that make copper pipes, being something very mundane. And they buy copper as a very volatile material, add value to it, put it into pipes and sell it at a fixed price. So they're absorbing price risk. They can't trivially pass on to their clients yeah. who can't constantly raise the prices or lower them and they said to me well you know why don't can you forecast prices you used to work in a commodity hedge fund surely you can and i said yeah yeah so i built them something that forecasted the price of copper so they could hedge out that risk on the shanghai futures exchange if they thought they needed to with copper futures and i thought this is interesting and i was kind of leveraging i suppose the insecurity that Chinese do have about a market economy and speculation they're fantastic at ai but there's some aspects of capitalism that just we've been doing for longer and that's kind of what got me this deal but i came back to the uk and i thought there's something here i've been working in banks and hedge funds with all these data sets all these clever people making money out of money speculating but the people who actually do you know work in the physical economy don't have these skills or data sets the people who are making the cars, the biscuits, the pharmaceuticals we buy are very good at making those things, but they don't have the skills that banks and hedge funds do in forecasting the prices. So, pretentiously, why not democratise access to what I had here and bring it to here? So I went and chatted to some of my old colleagues at some of the hedge funds and managed to persuade them to join me, along with one of the guys who I'd done this ambulance call-out stuff with. And we had a lot of beginner's luck. I think my wife had built a website called Commodities AI. You said everyone puts the name AI into everything. We jumped yeah. on that pattern. And someone in Thailand Googled the words Commodities AI. And a week later, 
they had signed a six-figure contract with us to forecast the price of Brent crude, which we then had to work out how to do very quickly. So we obviously spent uh, you know a while trying to forecast Brent crude prices, which is hard work. And to be clear on that, for a layman like me, is it an amalgamation of a variety of data sets that no other one system, if you like, or firm amalgamates and looks for correlations? Or, you know, it, going back to something you were saying earlier, is it by combining a whole pile of data that might correlate, or is it something different? It's two things. It's that and something else. So it's knowing what to look at and how to look at it. I've always said that to get ahead in machine learning companies, and this, I guess, is relevant in terms of sort of investor opportunities and stuff, you don't want to compete with the big tech companies and operate in their dead zone by doing something that's domain agnostic. They will beat you. Google, Facebook... Uh, sorry, Meta and all these people, Amazon, will beat you at that kind of game. But if you know a lot about something, like commodities, they're never really going to get into a niche like that. Right. So, you know, we thought there would be a lot of mileage in building a tool that knew loads about commodities, knew what the economic reasons were for this data set to drive the price, and then also how to synthesize these different data sets together and that we'd have a moat versus anyone else trying to do this even a moat against the hedge funds because the hedge funds have a very different use case and also the people saying the hedge funds later like you know people like you after so we went about with the premise that we could forecast raw material prices by knowing all the data that matters by looking at satellite pictures by tracking every boat movement yeah. globally recurrency movement etc cetera, etc cetera, and knowing when not to look at those things and knowing how to combine them and most importantly, right from the beginning, if we wanted people to use these forecasts, they had to believe in them and explain them to other people. So an important aspect of machine learning and AI has been explainability, and it will continue being that. And you make choices when you build a system, sometimes in terms of trading off how good it is at forecasting things but versus how interpretable it is. The worst person to build a system like we built is someone like me. Because I'm incredibly geeky. I've been thinking about this for a very long period of time. And I'm slightly autistic to the extent I don't really understand why someone can't understand something I find really easy to, to get. I'm like, why can't you see it? You're so stupid. But you're my customer. I'll be giving some money. It was a real learning when we finally hired product people who said, you really need to change how you communicate to the outside world. And part of that is doing even more on explainability. We think we've explained something, but we all used to work in hedge funds you know, with this as our bread and butter. So the way we explain it is not how someone working in procurement who hasn't got the time to kind of Google all these financial terms, we need to say this is what it's doing and why in a way that someone's not going to have to have any time in trying to understand. And that, it seems obvious, but it's taken us sort of four years to get to that point. You've got these end customers, you're helping them predict raw commodity prices, you're doing that in an explainable way. We were chatting just offline about the potential move into sort of insurance around that. Does it just we touch on that? So it was actually always something we wanted to do was, and, and more for economic reasons, the value in a market intelligence tool is much lower than something that has exposure to the amount people spend on raw materials. So we'd always wanted to build something that we could transfer risk away. And again, part of this narrative of democratization of access to the tools we had in banks and hedge funds. Another thing is the lack of a level playing field in terms of financial products available to companies. It's amazing how large you have to be before you have access to a broker who will sell you a future options price 
or have an accounting function that doesn't mind doing mark-to-market accounting or margining. So we thought, well, there's two things we can do here. One is use our forecasting capability to open up new markets. So for example, some of our customers, we've got some very big Fortune 500 for 2100 customers, find it trivial to get rid of risk in like coffee, sugar, yep. wheat. Maybe they make biscuits or chocolates. They find it impossible to get rid of the packaging risk around that. Right. So using our AI technology, using the fact that we can track every boat movement and understand how this plastic price is going to evolve in the future, we can create an insurance product that offsets that plastic risk for our customers. But more importantly, we now have the ability to do that in any market. So smaller companies who are actually having quite a tough time at the moment, don't need to talk about the other thing that's on everyone's minds is inflation and the volatility of the cost base, we can help them there. So we think we've got something that's really going to help UK PLC and then internationally de-risk their supply chains. The world has changed of late with a thing called ChatGPT, yeah. and I would yeah. be absolutely shot by every single one of our sales desk if it didn't ask you for your view on how that and similar technologies might change the world. But let's start with, before we get on to the future-looking stuff, you know, has it excited you again? Is it revolutionary or is it different? Is it a genuine advancement for somebody that knows as much as you do? Massively. I mean, I, I know when technical people get asked about things, it might seem weird that they say, I don't know anything about this. I genuinely, just because I know about this other stuff, doesn't mean I know a huge bunch of ChubGBT. But with that caveat in place, I am excited. I've always been a bit of a skeptic of a lot of the other revolutions, other kind of deep learning one that was maybe four or five years ago. This, to me, is massively different. And I am a bit like you were saying, you wouldn't be forgiven for not asking me about it. I don't think at Chai, we'd be forgiven for not using it ourselves. It's the kind of thing when you know, when you go on raising money, people are going, why aren't you using it? And we will use it. It is completely different in my mind to a lot of the other advances in machine learning because it's so accessible. There's three things that basically drive all these massive AI jumps. There's the data, the algorithms, and the compute. And they've all kind of been moving forwards and like people make big noises about one versus the other but they all have to move together to for these yeah. advances to happen something's happened that's made it possible for my 13 year old son to have in his hands on his you know little computer the ability to operate in the world's state-of-the-art ai through a browser it's absolutely incredible because anyone can access these state-of-the-art tools i you know you don't need to have a a computer science PhD, you don't need to have a supercomputer, you don't need to have anything else. There's no barrier to entry. And that obviously is going to disrupt a lot of things economically. It's going to completely change business models. It'll enable a lot. It'll make others impoverished. But what I would say is that the impact will perhaps be more democratically felt. Look at fintech and how it's benefited from machine learning. It benefited in many areas, much more than other industries, because it had loads of data. It also had huge economic incentives to kind of make something of that data in a way that other industries took a while to catch up with. You could sort of see law, for example, as coming a bit later, because it took a while for the data to be out there, you know, for people to literally go through documents and make them available. Then people start being able to use machine learning and law. And I think something like ChatGPT and these large language models, there's something special about them is now 
the the kind of requirement for the data to be in the right format or to be Tron up, et cetera, has almost disappeared. It's a very different use case and a very different accessibility it means that we're not unfairly biasing advances in industries that have got like numerical data stored electronically somewhere in a positive way. So in that sense, you've got something that applies to loads of different industries and verticals. And in my mind, fintech is a very strong example of like, well, for example, a lot of the old retail banks, they may be replacing their internal systems. They still have this layer that they have a problem with, which is actually talking to their customers. Yeah. And, and something like ChatGPT will change that. For the better for everybody, the companies, and I'm thinking as a user, yeah. that, that, you know, I, I sort of sigh whenever I see another chatbot. That's exactly what I mean. I sigh, you know, the little piece of me dies when they have to knowingly engage with a robot. And I think these things kind of pass the Turing test. I don't know if it's too anecdotal, but... My first experience of ChatGPT was being fooled by my son on WhatsApp. We were having, my wife and I were having an argument with him, trying to persuade him to come to parents' evening. And he typically writes these very curt, badly written responses. And we got this very eloquent one about sort of petitioning us why he shouldn't have to come. And we were a bit suspicious because he'd written it very quickly. Well, that's really impressive. But then the super boy wrote another one about one second later, and no human being could have written that fast. And then I was like, well, you're using ChatGPT. This is amazing. So. That's passing the Turing test. That, you know, that used to be the, the definition of kind of, uh, or the benchmark, I'm using the definition slightly loosely, of what constituted something that was you know, sentient. I don't think we're far from at least our use cases of asking why we haven't got our statements delivered or why they've charged us too much interest from being fooled about it being a person or a chatbot using ChatGPT now. I could totally see that not being a frustrating experience anymore. I hate to ask this question, but GDPR, we're suddenly in a world where use of data goes through an exponential curve use cases for data explode how does that work in a gdpr world i think the regulation around this is got to be brought in very quickly this technology is growing faster than we're able to think about the economic consequences or the regulatory things associated with that and i think what people like OpenAI are trying to do are saying that we don't want to be the next google and maligned so Maybe let's transfer culpability a little bit by signaling we care about it and getting some yeah. lawmakers involved. But clearly there are going to be, I don't know exactly in the case of GDPR, but there are going to be issues with what data is used to train these things. Specifically on something like GDPR, and I guess in sort of the context of fintech, is that the way these models work is interesting. They absorb and are trained in a way that is agnostic, typically, to their use case. So something like ChatGPT is kind of like you throw the internet at it and you throw loads of news articles at it, yeah. and then you can fine-tune them to your particular use case with yeah. domain. And that second bit would be very GDPR relevant. But I think the first bit is like it's too late. You know, the kind of the pre-trained bit of the P and GPT, I think is post-GDPR. It's, it's like... We've opened Pandora's box there. Predictions for the future are sat in a year's time. The chai level, presumably you're going to be out there hopefully selling these insurance. We'll be selling insurance products. We'll also have chat GPT in our system. You know, we're, yeah. We forecast commodity prices. Instead of it being a grant off, it will be a text commentary as if someone had written it. And then across a million different verticals, the, the main thing I'm hearing is if people don't take this seriously. And you're right, when you and I first met, you were sceptical on some of these things several years ago. But I, I see you as openly enthused now. People don't take these technologies okay. seriously and either embrace them around customer service or work out how their competitors are going to use them better than they are. Then there's a situation. It used to be the people who knew how to create AI were the ones who are you know, way ahead. Now 
I don't think anyone really cares if you know how ChatGPT is built or all the algorithms or the maths behind it. It's people who know how to use it. So there's no excuse for not trying to get behind using it. You know, literally going to a browser and typing in whichever variety and having a play with it. And it will be experience that drives someone's and a company's ability to take advantage of it more than some theoretical understanding. Tristan, thanks so much for that. Please do keep us in touch with events at Chai. And by the way, if you hear your son on the phone this evening, that's going to be me because you're making me feel very, <laughs> very guilty. I'm going to be taking lessons from him. So look, now, thanks so much. It's a privilege. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's chat, there's plenty more where that came from on Investec Focus Radio SA. Remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.